Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's innovative hidden screen folds away when closed, keeping it clean while bringing in a ton more sun. Choose 0% financing for 72 months or a free upgrade to the hidden screen on our 250 series. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Jane Matinere. This is one of those reasons why you should just never, right before you're getting ready to, to do a show, you should ne- never go through like your Twitter account because you're going to see things that distract you occasionally, sure. right? Okay. Brad Lane. You know, Brad was our, our former program director, really great guy, um, and he he commuted here from Minneapolis, as a matter of fact, for two years, and now he is the program director at WCCO Radio in Minneapolis, which is kind of like the, the WTMJ of Minneapolis. Right. right. So I follow him on Twitter, and I'm, I'm just doing like a last-minute scan of Twitter to see if there's anything right before I do the show. Here Here's the tweet from our former program director, Brad Lane. Warning. Apologize for too much information here, but a few minutes ago, I had to sneeze while at the urinal and hit my head on the flusher valve. <laughs> Just a heads up to my WCCO radio teammates if you see a new new bruise on my noggin. Oh, no. <laughs> I, well, I, I just, I, now I've been, see, this has been bothering me. I, I, I came across this about 10 minutes ago. I'm trying to picture how this can even happen, you know? It's well, lacking urinal experience right. myself, I, I would I would cater to your expertise on this. All I can think of is it must have been one heck of a sneeze, right? Or he was standing way too close. One of the two. I don't know exactly, but it's it's like I'm, I'm trying to imagine. You know, you and you come out, you get this big old bruise on your forehead. Well, how how did you do it? Well, I, I was attacked. In, I was attacked in the bathroom. Right. I sneezed at the urinal and banged my head on the flusher <laughs> valve. All right, so that's how I start the program. Okay, you got it. So that's that's Brad. We we miss, we miss Brad, and I'm, and I, again, I'm sitting here. I'm just trying to visualize that that occurring, and I, I whatever. Be careful out there, guys. Yeah, be be careful. Right, this is a, you know? an unknown hazard. It, it is exactly, and it's allergy season, so who knows? You know, <laughs> that's it. All right. All right, but that was kind of the distraction. It's like, huh? I've been concentrating on doing all this other stuff. Now I'm picturing Brad Lane with a big old bump on his on his noggin. All right, let us move on. As I started the program, um, th- this is a story I-, I saw it last night as I was preparing for the show, and I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to calm down a little bit. Maybe it's not going to bother me as much when I wake up tomorrow morning. And well, I woke up tomorrow morning and saw the story again, and it it still continues to bother the heck out of me. I want to share it with you, and then we're going to use it as a point of discussion. This was a story that was reported on Fox 6 last night. And I've said this before. I think of all the different TV stations in the market, I think Fox 6 is doing an outstanding job with doing something that I've actually challenged the media around here to do, which is you know tracking the, the career criminals. Let, let's, let's focus on when, when Daryl Brooks drives through the Waukesha Christmas Parade and kills a half dozen people and injures dozens and dozens of more, and it turns out that he's on, you know, a stupid low bail. You know, people say, oh, he's on a stupid low bail. My point has been that this is not a one-off. Daryl Brooks was just perhaps the most dramatic of, of a series of people who've been released on stupid low bails and have continued to commit crimes. And Fox 6, to their credit, they've been doing a series of stories that, you know, are focusing on crimes that are committed by people who shouldn't be out on the street. 
This is another one in a slightly different context. Now, we talk on this program regularly about the scourge of reckless driving, the people driving 80 and 90 miles an hour, lots of times in stolen cars, but not always, 80, 90 miles an hour, who just do it over and over again, who run from the police, who blow through the red lights, who do, who have no driver's license and no insurance and just don't care. All right, this is the story from last evening. Nobody cares about reckless driving except old people. That's what one of one of Milwaukee's most persistent violators said just moments after a court hearing for driving with a revoked license. Fox 6 investigator Brian Polson caught up with a young man police have pulled over 35 times in just three years. I may not be in fast cars, or you just pay me to do. What you might call reckless. Y'all know what the going on. We all sit here with you now. 24-year-old Dyrell Chaplin calls driving. I was just, you know, going down the street, you know, doing normal stuff. Normal stuff, like... Running reds in broad day, that's me! Blowing red lights, fleeing from police, and barreling down city streets at 20, 30, even 40 miles per hour or more over the limit. That is speeding. It is not reckless driving. Police across southeast Wisconsin have stopped Chaplin at least 35 times the past three years. We got the worst driving record I've ever seen. But it wasn't until June 10th that the Fox 6 investigators caught up with him. Y'all knew I had a court date? Yeah. <laughs> Outside the Waukesha County Courthouse. And they know what a joke it is. Do you worry about killing yourself or someone else? No, zombie going that crazy. There's kids out here that's shaking their nay. I ain't doing all that. I'm just driving fast. Last summer, police and sheriff's deputies in Milwaukee stopped Chaplin eight times in a span of 33 days with no plates, no registration, no insurance, and no license. I ain't, I ain't running the stop sign. Dude, I, my guy. I yield. I'm not here to mess with you, bro. And every time, they let him drive away illegally. Why do you think that is? Cause there ain't nothing they can do about it. That terrifies me. But it's not just the driving that scares city residents. What's the mentality behind this? It's the mindset. It don't even matter. It's, we don't. People don't care about that. That just you know the older people care about that. Steve O'Connell chairs the Sherman Park Reckless Driving Committee. Someone like that, you're not going to change until the whole community says, excuse me, but you're a danger. You're ticking time bomb. Jordan Morales is vice president of the Sherman Park Community Association board. I did not sign up to get T-boned by a kid going 80 miles an hour. Both pushed the city to install traffic calming features like speed humps and curb extensions to slow drivers down. But when it comes to the most persistent violators, we just trying to get to where we going at a fast pace. They say engineering is not enough. I'd like that guy to go to jail and not pass go. I can't just give my name instead so I can hurry up the process because I really got to go. Last month, Milwaukee police started towing reckless drivers under limited circumstances, like speeding 25 miles per hour or more over the limit in an unregistered car. But even when a driver meets both conditions, officers have an option. We do not want officers waiting for tows for hours on end. Since the tow policy took effect May 1st, police have cited 320 drivers for going at least 25 over. They've towed 45 of their cars, or 14%. As for the rest... I'm not worried about the plates or insurance or nothing. An MPD spokesman says he does not know how many had unregistered cars because they do not track when an officer uses discretion. This gentleman's car is a beautiful candidate. Police have yet to tow Dyrell Chaplin's car. How'd you get here today? 
Can't say all that. Since our investigation aired in April, he says he's been feeling a little heat. I mean, I ain't driving right now because my P.O. on my eyes. So this time, when he came to court, he got a ride. Brian Polson, Fox 6 Investigators. Chaplin is currently serving two years probation on a felony conviction for fleeing from police in 2019. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. He is currently serving two years probation for fleeing from police. Okay, let, let's let's review the highlights of this story. Um, from 2019 to 2021, police pulled this guy over 35 times. Last summer, police in the sheriff's office stopped him eight times in 33 days with no license plates, no registration, no insurance, or no, and no driver's license. And all each time, he was allowed to simply drive away. He's, he's been fleeing from police, blowing red lights, barreling down city streets, 20, 30, even 40 miles an hour over the speed limit. His response is, only old people care about driving like this. They ask him, well, why Why do you think that you keep getting away with this? He says, because there ain't nothing they can do about it. Um, I'm just doing normal stuff, driving down the street. I, that's one of my favorite parts of it. It says, well, I, I mean, I, I'm in fast cars. What do you expect me to do? This This punk is 24 years old and has been stopped. Uh, again, 35 times in the last three years, including eight times, 33 days last summer. He's not worried about killing people. I don't be going that crazy. The, there's kids out there. I can't even know what they says they're doing. I'm not doing that. I'm just driving fast. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the report says, well, the city's trying to do certain things like kind of adjust the streets and all to make it more difficult for people to drive fast. That, that let, Let's understand, that's not going to stop this guy. This guy is going to continue doing this until he hits something and kills someone, at which point in time he's going to be in prison for a long period of time, or alternatively, till he loses control, hits and kills himself in, in a car, which is not an outcome you want anyways. But here's the bottom line of this. How, how can... Seriously, how can we have a system that is so, so very screwed up to allow somebody to simply flaunt the flaunt the, the rules? Yeah, I know you stopped me for going 40 miles an hour over the limit. I don't have a driver's license. I don't have any insurance. This is the eighth time I, I've done this. Here, give me a ticket. You know darn well, I, I mean, I... My guess is he's not paying these various tickets. And then he just drives off again. We need to change the whole way we look at this. This guy should have been in prison a long time ago because he will kill himself or he will kill somebody else or he will cause major damage. And it is absolutely outrageous to me that we have a system that tolerates this sort of stuff. So what is the answer? Well, it's to criminalize this behavior and to to treat it like the menace that it is. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Tony Evers likes to call special sessions. Well, okay, may, maybe we need a special session of the state legislature on reckless driving to start imposing significant criminal penalties, violations of state law on people who are repeat traffic offenders like this because this guy is, at least in my opinion, is as much if not more of a menace 
than a lot of people who um, end up getting convicted for crimes and going to prison. 855-616-1620. Let's be honest. Unless this man is taken off the street, and he's not the only one, he's just one of the worst offenders, somebody's going to die. Sooner or later, somebody is going to die or be seriously injured, and then we're all going to be saying, how could this go on? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. I have a link to this story. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. This is... If you're not aggravated, I, my question to you would be, why Why not? Here you have somebody who is continuing, and he's proud of it. Thirty. This kid's 24 years old. 30-plus times he has been stopped over the last couple years for speeding, for reckless driving, etc. He, he's he's not apologetic about it. No, this is just what I do. I, 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 drive, I drive fast. I don't have a license. I don't have an insurance. insurance. The rest of us are just chumps. All those of us who, I don't know, drive the speed limit and have insurance for our cars and have valid driver's license, why, why, why bother if you're going to have punks like this that are out on the street driving in this sort of fashion who then when they're stopped by the cops just simply drive, oh, I don't have a license, I don't have, you know, I, I've been stopped 35 times, I'm just going to drive away here and and then, yeah, I'll make my court date and I'll show up and I'll get this citation and they'll tell me to pay this much money and I, I doubt he pays, don't know for sure one way or the other but it doesn't matter what we're doing doesn't work why oh why aren't we putting people like this in prison i'm not just talking about jail i'm talking about prison because just as sure as night follows day if this guy does not change his behavior sooner or later he is going to hit and kill somebody a pedestrian in an intersection when he's blowing through a red light at 85 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour or whatever or somebody else who's driving through an intersection will hit and slam him and t-bone him 855-616-1620 jeff in fox point jeff you're on wtmj hi jeff um these engineering adjustments that that they mentioned in the story are half measures and i don't think they're ultimately going to solve the problem this guy and others like him are, are going to kill people and the more i hear stories like this the more i want to just not go anywhere and hide in my apartment and actually make plans to actually move out of the greater milwaukee area and go somewhere that's going to more strongly value public safety than how they might look by arresting people like that well thanks for call well yeah i mean look at it and i don't i don't know if this is a unique problem to urban areas but i look i i understand Pe- people do dumb things in cars and i'm not saying that every time somebody runs a red light or every time somebody gets caught for speeding 10 miles an hour over the speed limit you take them away in handcuffs but my lord when you look at this guy who is on tv proud of the fact that that he drives in this fashion who clearly by giving him warnings or giving him tickets or whatever it has not changed his behavior how much of this stuff do we tolerate and how many more people like that are out there and do we really get into a situation where we just have to wait until and that that, see that's what happens with stolen cars and i know i sound like a broken record on this but you know you have these young punks who are out there stealing cars and driving just like this guy does no driver's license license and the stolen cars running from cops driving 80 miles an hour and nothing 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 happens to them until finally they go through that intersection and they hit and they kill a couple people and then we say okay well now you're going to prison for the next 20 years well maybe if we had intervened maybe that wouldn't have happened but in this case this guy is a walking walking menace to public safety and we let him continue to be out on the streets 855-616-1620. 
Kathy. Kathy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Kathy. Um, my idea is simply this. Load up the police trunk with steering wheel lock. They pull somebody over that's not licensed, not registered, doing 40 over. You pull them over. You throw the steering wheel lock on. You call the tow truck, and you impound the car until... I mean, if it's stolen until the owner can show up and verify that it's covered. Otherwise, you just impound the car and, you know, um, you let them walk, I guess. Or you issue a ticket and you take them to jail. Well, no, see, that, I mean, no, I, no, I'm, see, I'm, I'm with you. You, you know, there, there is no way in the world that any police officer that stops this guy with this guy's record should not just have the car towed. I mean, to, to let to let this guy drive off is just uh, appalling. Now, I don't know if it's his car or if it's other people's cars or whatever, but I, I agree with you. When you have these reckless drivers with driving records, and I'm not even talking this drive, this is an extreme situation, but driving records that are bad but a lot better than this, you have to impound the cars. Now, does that solve the problem completely? No, because the reality is you're not going to solve the problem completely until you start saying, all right, we're taking these traffic offenses seriously. We're taking blowing through red lights at 40 miles an hour seriously. And after you have accumulated X number of tickets, and I don't know what that number is, but it's certainly it's certainly a heck of a lot less than 30-some stops over a three-year period, and people are these chronic bad drivers. Why do we put up with this? It's a rhetorical question. Let's get these people off the streets. And, and if putting them in jail for six months or a year or two years if that doesn't change their behavior, okay, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can rehabilitate people for this. Somebody says, well, we need to publicize his name and shame him. You can't shame people who have no shame. I mean, my gosh, this guy's on TV talking about, I'm, I'm not driving recklessly. I, I just drive fast. Ha, 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 ha. Um, you, you can't shame people who, are, are, who have no shame. So what you have to do is get them off the streets. Maybe they learn their lesson. Even if they don't learn their lesson, at least it protects the rest of us for the six months or the year or the two years that they're off the streets. But this this is just the most visible example I've seen in a long time of literally, what's the cliche, an accident waiting to happen. And it could be you driving through the streets. It could be your spouse driving through the streets. It could be your kids driving through the streets. Somebody somewhere is going to get seriously injured by these reckless drivers who just don't care. So we need to start caring, and we need to start getting them off the street. If you want to see the whole report and the, the visuals that accompany this are just mind-boggling, Again, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. As I have said repeatedly, I do not believe there was fraud in the 2020 election. And yes, I've seen the 2000 Mules movie. I, I don't believe there was fraud in the generally accepted sense of what we talk about with election fraud. Like here, um, Lyndon Johnson gets elected when he finds to this Texas Senate when they, they just mysteriously find a, a box of ballots that has just enough votes that he needs to win. Or, you know, Mayor Daley in Chicago where we've got people who passed away 10, 15 years ago who, who vote. I, I don't think there is, I forget, don't think, there, there is no evidence that you had that type of fraud that existed. In Wisconsin, we had a number of election practices that to me were 
perhaps, and I say perhaps because nobody has a definitive answer on this, perhaps we're engaged in in violation of the law. Now, that, that's different than, hey, we had this fraud. Uh, Wisconsin election law is, I think it's unclear, for example, about whether you can allow drop boxes or, or not. Now, the courts are, are deciding that, and it's working its way through. There's also stuff that happened that was, I would say, not best practices. I think it is troubling that outside groups like a, like a Mark Zuckerberg and his organization can put enormous amounts of money into elections, channel that money towards local election clerks, and then, in the case of, say, Wisconsin, they, the money went largely, not exclusively, but largely to <clears throat> uh clerks in heavily democratic areas who use that to juice voter turnout nothing wrong with that and i don't mean that there was a crime there but it it gave an inherent advantage if okay we're spending all this money trying to juice voter turnout um in highly democratic areas it gives an advantage to in this case the democrats i don't think it was illegal i think it probably should be illegal but i don't believe it was but in any event you you have these in some cases you have election practices that were questionable. Um, I think it's very clear in 2020, you had election clerks, say in Milwaukee and Madison, who took a very small L liberal reading of local of state election laws in an effort to maximize voter turnout. Now, you, you, you might say, hey, that, that's that's a good thing. But at the same time, if those interpretations of the law were incorrect, they shouldn't be allowed to do it. So I don't think there was fraud involved in the general sense of the term, but I do think we need clarification of election rules. You know, what does the law really mean? What can clerks do? What can clerks not do? And I think it's important to get that clarity. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, that we're not going to have that in many areas before 2022. So... I don't think, again, that it's there was fraud. I don't think the election was, quote, unquote, stolen. And I know some people don't like to hear me say that, but I, I don't believe that that was the case. But I do think that there's all sorts of questions about interpretations of election law that we should have cleared up. So in any event, into this picture runs Tim Michaels, who is one of the leading Republican candidates for governor. And you have many in the mainstream media who are just, I don't know if it's the Tony Evers Protection Act or it's just, here, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try to figure out gotcha questions for Republicans. And so this is the headline in the local newspaper. GOP governor candidate Tim Michaels won't say whether he would certify the next presidential election. Oh, we've got him. This is the gotcha question for Tim Michaels. He's going to be one of these election deniers. He's going to this is this is chaos. He's a challenge to democracy. GOP candidate Tim Michaels won't say whether he would certify the next presidential election. Here's the story from Molly Beck, former President Donald Trump's preferred candidate for governor. See, and of course, we're going to write the story. We've got to get Donald Trump's name right up front. Former President Donald Trump's preferred candidate for governor won't say whether he would certify the next presidential election if Trump makes another run for the White House and again loses the key battleground state of Wisconsin. Tim Michaels, a wealthy construction executive endorsed by Trump. When I'm just kind of curious, when they write about 
um, Alex Lazary, when they write about uh, Sarah Galuski, the Republican Senate, the Democrat Senate candidates, is it always going to be a wealthy so-and-so or a wealthy so-and-so? Because they're extremely wealthy, too. But anyhow, Tim Michaels, a wealthy construction identity, uh, executive endorsed by Trump, told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that the question is too hypothetical to answer at this point adopting a similar position to Rebecca Clayfish when asked whether she would have certified the 2020 election. Well, but he's asked about 2024. And the question is, okay, if Trump runs and if Trump loses in Wisconsin, would you certify the election? And his response is, it's it's too much of a hypothetical to, to imagine. Explain why it was that Trump, you know, lost the election. That's kind of like saying, gee, if the Martians declared war on Wisconsin, would you call out the National Guard? The, the whole point is, th- these are these kind of hypotheticals. And it seems to me, other than trying to like ask these kind of gotcha questions to get the headlines that are then going to be the fodder that the other side uses for their their ads maybe you should really try to like focus on like the current events and things like that now i mean what here, here's what you know michael says uh, about this he says look if if i'm elected governor i'm going to work with the legislature to fix the big problems that we had in 2020 citing the use of ballot drop boxes and private grant funding to administer uh, elections okay um that's that's i think a fair question. That's not saying that the election was stolen. It's saying that we've got all these open questions about this that need to, in fact, be clear up. Um, He says, look, to do this, I would abolish the Wisconsin Elections Commission, ban Zuckerbucks, clean up our voting list, ban ballot harvesting and drop boxes, and create a law enforcement agency to root out fraud before this starts. He said, no, I, I believe we do this. I will be able to certify the election because I will have assured it was conducted with integrity. I, look, I, I don't go down this, this, this whole route. I'm not imp- – I don't think – I would not say that I don't believe the 2020 election was conducted with integrity. I think you had different, as I've said before, different interpretations of law that were engaged in. And, and obviously, the law is an art. It is not a science. Some interpretations were right. Some were wrong. And ultimately, you need the court to decide it, or you need the legislature and the governor to get together and make the law clear. I think the sooner we do that, the better it's going to be. But I'm also a realist. That's not going to happen legislatively until you have um, Democrats controlling the Assembly and the Senate and the governor's seat, or Republicans controlling the, de- the governor's seat and the Assembly and the Senate. Then you're going to get some sort of consensus that's out there. But this idea of, well, you know, if Trump runs, if Trump loses, would you refuse to certify the election? I think the only response that you could give is, well, let, let's wait till that happens. You know, <laughs> let's let's wait to see what happens. And, you know, why is it that Trump, quote unquote, lost? And what were the factors here? And then I'll make the decision. Any other answer to give to this would have been absolutely ridiculous. But, of course, that that's not what this story was all about. It was all about trying to generate this headline. Here, Tim Michaels, he's another one of these election deniers. And I don't read his response to that that question in that fashion at all. It's just, hey, this is too hypothetical. It's too up in the air. Ask me when it happens. I think that that's a fair response to many people. Gee, um, if there's an allegation of widespread election fraud, 
after the 2022 gubernatorial election? Should it be investigated or not? Well, the question would be, okay, well, I can't answer that because what what type of fraud are you talking about? Explain to me what the specific allegations are going to be and then I'll give you an answer as best I can, but maybe you really want to just wait to see if what happens, and then we can decide. But then, of course, you don't get the headline. Now, this is kind of interesting. Maybe there's sort of a grassroots neighborhood watch that's starting up. The first half hour of the program, I replayed that report from um, Fox 6 about the, the guy who's been stopped 35-plus times over the last couple of years for reckless driving and driving around with no insurance and no driver's license, who's like, hey, I, I don't drive recklessly. I, I just like to drive fast. And who, you know, why do you keep doing this, despite the fact that you keep getting stopped and you keep getting arrested? Oh, they can't do nothing to me. Um, it's it, it's um, interesting because, and of course, I, I ask rhetorically, why are we allowing this? Because you know, sooner or later, this guy is going to be driving recklessly, and he's going to blow through a red light, and he's going to hit and kill somebody, and then, then finally, we're going to get him off the streets. Well, you need to get people off the streets a lot sooner, because otherwise, the rest of us, we're just chumps that we pay our insurance and things like that. Anyway, here's one of the texts. Jeff, I just saw Milwaukee's most famous reckless driver sitting in the parking lot of a Century on around 79th and Lisbon. Of course, he was in the car um, that he's been in all the news stories with. There are still no license plates on the vehicle. Maybe that's kind of what you need. Maybe we need a, a, a real neighborhood watch, and maybe it's... Maybe the goal of this needs to be to kind of shame the court system and, and shame the, the authorities if, you know, for maybe that's what a public service would be for some of the TV stations. Milwaukee's most notorious le- reckless drivers. Let's put their pictures up there. Let's put il- pictures of their cars, including the license plates. So when people see these guys out and about or gals out and about, what they can do is they can they can call 911. They can call like the local police department. They can say, hey, I, I'm behind this car. This is featured on, you know, one of uh, Milwaukee's most reckless drivers. The guy's driving. doesn't matter if he's rec- driving reckless or not. But, you know, there's no license plate on the car or this is that guy. I'm pretty sure of it. Maybe you want to take a look at it. I mean, maybe... Maybe that's what you need to do, some citizen action, some neighborhood watch, this type of thing, except kind of do it citywide. Because what's happened around here is the law-abiding people, the law-abiding citizens, and most people are, are becoming prisoners of the criminals because it's like, all right, this is, you know, you live in a block where the cars, I was talking about this yesterday, there was this Brewers Hill neighborhood where for the second time in two weeks you had somebody uh, or people some person or people who like went through the outdoor parking lot with crowbars or baseball bats or whatever and broke out the windows and a dozen cars and went through and kind of ransacked the cars looking for money or whatever that might be well okay my point is why do people accept this why do we tolerate it why do we live like this they were talking about well you know maybe we need to get a security guard well that's a half measure that's a band-aid that's kind of like let's let's um, reduce the size of the street to make it more difficult for the rest Reckless drivers to drive. I, I'm not against that, but why don't we deal with the fundamental problem, which is if you've got people that are breaking into cars, let's catch them, let's prosecute them, let's put them behind bars. If you've got people that are driving in this reckless fashion, yeah, it, it's fine to 
and or narrow the streets to make it harder to speed. But isn't the underlying problem that you have people that just don't give a rat's rip that are out there on the streets? Let's get them off the streets. And it starts with vigorous law enforcement, and it then continues to follow up with the court system to hold people accountable. And if you need new laws... You know, passed in the state of Madison, in Madison, for the state of Wisconsin to give people more authority to get these dangerous drivers off the street before they kill somebody, but after they've driven 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 times and been stopped without licenses and without insurance or whatever. If you need more laws to make that a crime and make it easier for the prosecutors to prosecute the people and get them off the streets, I'm all in favor of that too. But let's wake up around here and say, hey, we're tired of being chumps. We're tired of being victims. We're tired of being victimized by the people that just refuse to conform to the norms of society. And if they're not going to conform, go with God, but also send them to Wapan. And related to my last couple comments, here's a text. And this is the type of stuff which you happens, I, I think, on a regular basis, but... Because crime is so out of control, you you never hear about these stories. You don't hear about, oh, the shots fired unless somebody ended up dead. That's because there's so many shots fired that result in people ending up dead or ending up in the hospital that you just, the news media doesn't have enough time because this happens so often. So here's the thing. Jeff, regarding your reckless driving discussion, I volunteer for Habitat for Humanity every Wednesday. Those are the folks that go out and, and build build homes, you know, in, in um, generally speaking, economically depressed areas. For the third time this year, our construction site was shut down today due to shots fired at 11 a.m., thugs running the streets and causing constructive change and rebuilding of neighborhoods in our city to stop. Um, again, it happened today. And those are the stories. I, I mean, I wonder how often that actually happens, that you never hear about it because, okay, it's a shots-fired situation, but nobody got hit and nobody's dead and nobody's in the hospital, um, which is all a good thing. But it's just that this out-of-control violence that is there and this segment of the society, and, and I think, I like to think it's a relatively small segment, but they just, the people that are engaging in this behavior and these actions, just don't think the rules apply to them. What do you mean, reckless driving? I just like to drive fast. I have red lights. Those are just suggestions. All these type of things, which uh, we all understand if they go on unchecked, sooner or later it's going to be bad. You got a shots fired situation. There's somebody you know, engaging in gunfire. Sooner or later they're going to hit and kill somebody. If you've got somebody blowing through red lights at 40 miles an hour over the speed limit, sooner or later they're going to hit and kill somebody. You just know it's going to happen. So why don't we get them off the streets before that happens? Just asking. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. New Marquette University Law School poll out. And I, I understand that people view polls with a, a dose of skepticism. I, I, I've said this before, and some people understand what I mean and other people just choose to believe what they want. I, I think in general, while polling has taken a hit lately, I, I think in general, 
polls do a reasonable job of capturing the state of the race. The, the one exception has always been with regard to Donald Trump. Well, what do you mean there's exception? Because for whatever reason, when it comes to Trump, I think a lot of times there's a lot of support that's out there that doesn't get picked up and people lie to the pollsters and things like that, which explains why the you know, pollsters oftentimes miss the, the support that exists for, for Trump. But in general, I, I don't disbelieve polling. I think that they've um, had to make some adjustments over the years as more people have gone to no, nobody has landlines anymore and things like that but i, I think it's also an a rel, it's an indicator of where races stand and particularly if you have a number of polls that show the same sort of results i, I think you, you dismiss that at, at your own at your own risk so the marquette university law school poll has always been accepted as one of the, the better polls in the area and they are out with a poll right now which actually to me the the numbers that they have there sort of reflects where, where my gut tells me the races in Wisconsin are. And if you wonder why, you know, programs like this, programs like mine and others spend time talking about these races and things like that, it's because there is incredible interest in these races, and we are either blessed or cursed here in Wisconsin to live in a state where almost every election is a toss-up. You know, in, in some states, look, if, if you're a Republican running statewide in California, it's just not going to happen. You know, that's it. You know, it might happen some other, sometime in my lifetime if I live long enough, but it, it's just not going to happen. If you are a Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Alabama, there was a primary there yesterday. If you're a Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Alabama, you're not going to win. That, that's just the way it's broken up in Wisconsin. Every election is is a battle. So here's the latest results. Um, let's talk about the Republican primary for governor, first of all. You have four major candidates who are running for the right to challenge Tony Evers in November. Uh, businessman Tim Michaels, who just got in the race. Former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. Um, you've also got Kevin Nicholson. And you've got Timothy Ramtham, who is... You know, one of the, I would describe him, I've met him once, nice enough guy, but he's sort of a fringe candidate. So here's the deal. In the Republican primary, according to the Marquette Law School polls, it's really, it's it's deadlocked with um, Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish. Michaels, who just entered the race, he's backed by 27% of likely Republican voters in the primary. Rebecca Clayfish is at 26. So it, they're they're locked in. Uh, Kevin Nicholson is polling 10%, and Rantham is polling 3%. 32% of Republican primary voters remain undecided. I, that's th- Those numbers seem to match. I think it is a very, when I'm out and about and people want to talk politics with me, I think it's a very, very close race. And I think um, I, I think Kevin Nicholson, who, by the way, I, I like on a personal level, and I think he's got a great career in, in politics ahead, but I, I, I don't believe that this is the right race for him. And he's pretty, he, he hasn't been able to break through at this point. And if you haven't been able to break through now, I, I'm not sure I, how I see that happening. But the Marquette Law School numbers show that there, um, either, in the case of Michaels and Clayfish, they're, they're deadlocked. So then they also ask the question, what about November? Um, you know, Evers versus any of the potential challengers. And it, it's interesting because it's all close. Um, Evers, 
Leeds Clayfish, 47 to 43%. Leeds Michaels, 48 to 41%. Um, Leeds Nicholson by about the same margin and a bigger margin over Rantham. But the, the bottom line is whether it's Michaels or Clayfish, or for that matter, I guess Nicholson, it, it's a very, very competitive race, um, close to the margin of error. And f- right now, there really hasn't been a focused campaign on Rebecca Clay versus Fish versus Evers or Michaels versus Evers. But the point is, it's shaping up as a very, very close race. One of the things that the poll also talks about is how Republicans, one of the things you look at is an enthusiasm gap. Who who is able to turn out their voters? One of the things that I, I firmly believe led to the election of Evers in, in 2018 and the defeat of Scott Walker was that an enthusiasm gap. You had Democrats, primarily in Madison, but, but also in Milwaukee to an extent, who just hated Donald Trump. And they turned out in record number. They turned out in huge numbers, and they couldn't vote against Donald Trump in 2018. But they voted, you know, for against anybody that had an R on their name. And, and in the statewide election, that was enough to swing the election from Walker to um, to, to Evers. So I, I think enthusiasm is important here. There is an enthusiasm gap, but it, it this year it. it It features Republicans, 67 percent of Republicans saying they're enthusiastic to vote compared with 58 percent of Democrats. And enthusiasm is one of those huge factors that that drive turnout. Now, it's still early. We're only sitting here in in June. So those numbers can change. But I, I think that's kind of my sense as well. Okay, so the other big statewide race is the race for uh, U.S. Senate. Ron Johnson running against really four Democrat challengers. And here's the, these challenges are, are sort of interesting. Um, Mandela Barnes, who is the current lieutenant governor, who's been comparatively underfunded compared to the, the other, at least a couple of the other candidates. Barnes, despite being outspent by millions of dollars, he's still leading the Democratic in the race for Democratic primary with 25 percent of the vote. Um, It's starting to look more like a two way race. Alex Lazary, who has been running for a while, he's, of course, the wealthy The Journal Sentinel writes wealthy when they described him. Michaels, Alex Lazary, who is the wealthy Milwaukee Bucks executive through family money, he's trailing at 21%. So 21% to 25%. Uh, Sarah Godlewski, the state treasurer out of Madison, who is extremely wealthy as well, she's at 9%. And uh, Outagamey County Executive Tom Nelson at 7%. So if you believe these numbers, it, it appears that the Democratic race for the for the Senate, the nomination, is starting to become a, a two-person two-person thing with Mandela Barnes and Alex Lazary. Okay, so here's the interesting, the most interesting thing to me about the, the polls. And just like the governor's race is going to be close, the, the U.S. Senate race is going to be close as well. I know that there are some people out there who think that there's no way Ron Johnson can lose, and I know there's some people out there who think, well, there's no way Ron Johnson can win. Well, here, here's the numbers. Um, in the projected November matchup against Johnson, if Mandela Barnes were the nominee, uh, it's fifty. It's forty-five to forty-three percent Barnes over Johnson. So Barnes wins slightly, but that's that. That's within the margin of error. Um, Godlewski, she gets forty-four percent to Johnson's forty-three percent. 
That's within the margin of error. Nelson gets 44% to 43%. That's, again, within the margin of error. And it, it just take it for what it's worth. It just shows it's going to be a very close race. Here's the this might be the most interesting thing in the entire poll, based on what I've seen thus far. In the head-to-head matchup, Ron Johnson, Alex Lazary. Now, keep in mind, for all three of the other candidates, um, Johnson is behind, but only slightly. It's very, very close. It's all within the margin of error. When they ask hypothetical matchup, Alex Lazary and Ron Johnson, Johnson leads. He's ahead 45 to 42 percent. And again, that, that's that that's that's extremely close. And maybe it's within the margin of error as well. But it is interesting that Johnson outperforms when he's pitted against Lazary. He does better than when he's been pitted against all the other candidates. And that's that's kind of fascinating to me. And it's it's sort of and again, maybe this is it's because it's been something I've been saying for the longest time. I think. I think Alex Lazary, I appreciate the value of money, but if Democrats nominate him, I, I think he's he's perhaps the weakest candidate of the four to run against Ron Johnson, simply because he's not from here. Um, y- yes, I understand he's a wealthy businessman, but it's family wealth. He's not Herb Cole. He's not a guy that you know was around Wisconsin the entire time and has family's name on grocery stores and and things like that. Was a was a you know a family businessman here. That's not Alex Lazary. Alex Lazary is young. I mean, he's in his thirties. You can make the argument that he's somewhat of a carpetbagger if you want to make that argument. I just I continue to believe, and I'm not saying that if Lazary gets the nomination and runs against Johnson, he's going to lose. I just believe quite candidly that he would of the four candidates probably be. Money notwithstanding, the the weakest of the four, and this poll kind of demonstrates that. So uh, take it for what it's worth, but the bottom line of all this is it shows a very, very close race. In the, 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 the governor's race, it shows a very, very close race in the U.S. Senate race, and what that means is Wisconsin is going to be a target. If you don't like to see the advertising, if you're already sick of it, sorry, it, it's just it's it's here to stay. You are going to have just a ton of money poured into the state by groups on by left wing groups, by right wing groups, by Republicans, by Democrats. That this is this is a real battleground state because in most states. You don't have numbers like this. You you don't have numbers within the margins of error. The governor's race is very much in play. The U.S. Senate race is very much in play. And the national parties know that. And this Marquette University Law School poll, again, you can choose to disbelieve polls if you if you want. But I, I think this poll reflects where the electorate is in Wisconsin, which is we are very polarized, we are very split, and it's going to come down to turnout, it's going to come down to enthusiasm, and a couple other factors, and I'll be around to talk about it. Looking forward to it. One of our texters says, well, you know, don't forget, in 2018, one of the other factors was a number of communities in an effort to juice Democratic voting uh, put advisory referendums on legalizing ballot, uh, legalizing marijuana on the ballot. And, and I, I, that was a factor, too. I, uh, but I, I still continue to believe it was this 
passion, this anti-Trump passion in certain, some highly democratic areas of the state that drove turnout to just absolutely remarkable letters, uh, levels. And yeah, the, the marijuana um, referendums were a factor as, as well, but it was a combination of stuff. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's all about turnout. It's all about motivated voters. And it's all in, in, in a state like Wisconsin, where it's going to be a close election. That That's just the, the, the case. I mean, I I will tell you, sitting right here, here right now, without making any predictions as who's going to win in November, because we don't know who the, the Republican candidates are going to be and who the Democratic candidates are going to be. But I, I would be, I, I would be surprised if the margin in any either the governor's race or the Senate race, I would be surprised if it's if it's more than like fifty two forty eight. And I would not be surprised if it's a lot closer than that. It's just that's just the reality. And it's why, you know, Wisconsin is such a, a battleground. Here is a story that I'm reluctant to talk about because the, on the one hand I have this issue with fairness. On the other hand I have no sympathy for this particular situation. Let me explain, and then I, I want to get your feelings on it. All right, Bill Cosby. We we all know, based on all these different allegations in the history, that, that Bill Cosby really wasn't America's dad. Bill Cosby um, had a, a history of sexually mistreating women and drugging them and all these different types of things. And, and I understand an appeals court threw out his convictions, but it... it it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't because he didn't do it. It was because of what we would describe as technicalities and things of the like. And I think it's one of the things that happens is when you see that this pattern of behavior and when you see you know, dozens of women come forward and they're making the same similar allegations, it's tough to just discount that. So I have no love lost for, for Bill Cosby at all. At the same time, there, there is, I think sometimes there's issues of fairness. For example, if you are... Well, how long ago was 1975, 85, 95, 2005, 2015, 47 years ago? All right. If, if you are, let's say, 55 years old, can you can you remember where you were in 1975 or can you remember what you did? Or if somebody were to come out and accuse you of doing something in 1975, would you be able to defend yourself? Now, the reason I, I bring this up is because yesterday. A jury in Santa Monica, California, found that Bill Cosby sexually assaulted a woman who, in 1975, was 16 years old. Her story was that he invited her and a friend to accompany him to the Playboy Mansion, and that once they got to the Playboy Mansion, he they, they then had, had sex. And her story is that this was not consensual sex. She says that the reason she didn't come forward over the years is a variety of things, including the fact that she repressed this and it was traumatic, etc. And it's only after Bill Cosby got all this attention that she felt comfortable coming forward. He denies this. There's no question the two of them were at the Playboy Mansion together, but he denies that there was a, a sexual assault. And this is, there is no physical evidence. I mean, there, there's no um, you know, DNA on things. There's no witnesses that, that saw you know, the, the two of them having relations. Um, it's just her word uh, against his. Um, and there's other testimony that, you know, um, after they, she says they had sex, 
that, you know, he stayed, she stayed, and she was swimming and ordering cocktails and things like that. So it's it's one of these he said, she said things. But it's it's from 1975. Now, the jury came down, and they awarded her half a million dollars in damages, but no punitive damages. But this was the, the issue that was there. It was like, all right, I have I have no sympathy for Bill Cosby. And if you were asking me, you know, gee, given the guy's pattern and practices over the years, do I think that something probably happened when, you know, he was at the Playboy Mansion 50-some years ago or 40-some years ago with this then 16-year-old girl? My, my gut feeling would probably tell me, yeah, I think there was. At the same time, when I put on my lawyer hat, my fundamental fairness hat, it's like, all right, how do you, if you are Bill Cosby, how do you defend yourself from an allegation that is this old, especially like in a court of law? Now, the in general, there is a statute of limitations, and that's why a lot of the women who came forward and made claims against Bill Cosby, they, they, they weren't able to get him into court, either criminally or civilly, because they were just so old. They had expired. The statute of limitations had expired. In California, there's a special exception that extends the statute of limitations um, when when minors are involved. And in this case, the, the woman was 16 years old when this happened. So the, the statute of limitations allowed her to bring the claim. I don't want people listening to me to think that the, this is a defense of Bill Cosby. It's, it's not. But it is a situation that says, okay, how does somebody – how do you defend yourself against an allegation that somebody makes that from something you supposedly did or allegedly did 45 or, or 50 years ago, especially in a situation where there's there's really no physical evidence? And so you know, I think the jury kind of grappled with this as well, because, like I say, they found no punitive damages. But Bill Cosby did get hit with a $500,000 compensatory damage award. I have no love lost for Bill Cosby, and as I said earlier, my sense is, given his history, that these allegations are probably correct, but still there's something that bothers me about how somebody, anybody, forget Bill Cosby, how anybody defends themselves against an allegation of something they supposedly did 45-plus years ago. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I just sent out a link to the story about the latest Marquette University Law School poll. And I, I guess my take on this is just regardless of the side of the aisle you sit on, the statewide races for governor and U.S. Senate are going to be really close. And again, to me, as I mentioned, the, the most interesting aspect of the latest Marquette University Law School poll, and if you're just tuning in, the, the big takeaways were in the Republican primary for governor, they have Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish running neck and neck, 26 to 27 or something like that. And the other two candidates... Be, be behind by quite a bit in the democratic primary for senate they have mandela barnes and alex lazary they're the leading candidates 25 percent to 21 percent and the others are are far back the other the most interesting thing though is in the head-to-head polls uh particularly the one um with ron johnson running against the democrat candidates they're they're, they're all close and with, we're talking about close within the margin of error, within like two points or one point I, either way. Except, so, but all, but three of the four Democrat candidates come out ahead, admittedly within the margin of error, Ron Johnson. The one who doesn't is Alex Lazary. Johnson is ahead of Lazary by three points. It's a, it's just, 
it's kind of it's interesting to me, and I, I think it's probably going to be something that causes some Democrat voters to to at least take notice because I think um, Democratic voters a prime uh, one of their their prime aspects is keeping Tony Evers in office, but also trying to defeat Ron Johnson, just like Republican voters are trying to defeat, uh, keep Ron Johnson in office and defeat Tony Evers. And one of the calculations, matter of fact, I was talking to somebody last night, and one of the calculations and one of the questions I always ask, they ask is, okay, who who is the most electable? Who's the most electable, in your opinion, Republican, to run against Tony Evers? And I always say, well, I'm not really sure who that's going to be yet, but I know a lot of people are trying to make that calculation. And that that's... I guess the most interesting takeaway is that Johnson trails three of the four Democratic candidates for Senate, but he leads Alex Lasry. Something's going on there. All right, let us switch gears. There is a lot of conversation, and there has been, about gun control measures, and now there's the report that the U.S. Senate is considering that they've reached some agreement that they're they're going to be able to pass some gun control regulations. Now, I, these are very, very limit, limited measures, and, you know, the devil is in the details. But, but we're having a lot of conversation about gun control, and I think there's – I think any any person has to be concerned – with the proliferation of firearms, and particularly the proliferation of firearms in the wrong hands of people. Now, I, I understand the, the argument, and I agree with it, that 99.999% of firearms owners are, are legitimate gun owners who have legitimate reasons for having their firearms and do not pose a threat to society. I mean, as I've said before, I mean, I've, I've owned a handgun for a long time. It has never occurred to me to take that handgun and go rob a, a 7-Eleven. It doesn't occur to me to to take that handgun and if I get into an argument in public, pull it out on Water Street and start shooting indiscriminately into the crowds. And that is the way the overwhelming majority of, of firearms owners behave. Yet there is a segment of firearms owners who are criminals. In many, many cases, it's people who are criminals who shouldn't legally be allowed to have firearms. But just like the reckless driver we were talking about in the 12 o'clock hour of the program, they don't care about the laws. They don't care if they're not allowed to have guns. They don't care about what the restrictions are. They're going to have their guns, and they're going to dare polite society to do something about it. And then there's the mentally ill people who shouldn't have guns but, you know, have guns and show up and end up shooting up schools or things of the like. So, I mean, there's a legitimate interest in trying to keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have guns. What I am intrigued by, though, is these uncontrovertible numbers that are out there that show that even though we have all these conversations about firearms and the proliferation of guns, it's not stopping people from buying guns. I mean, here's here's the numbers. I've got a Wall Street's Journal story. New, there's a new reports out that shows a two-decade surge in gun manufacturing. Licensed gun makers built 11.3 million firearms in 2020. That is a 187 percent increase over the numbers of guns they made in 2000. And, and this, there's a new report that's out there that just details a significant growth in gun manufacturing in, in the U.S. And we're at a point now where, again, homicides are at record levels and gun crimes are at record levels. But at the same time, American consumers are voting with their wallets and people are, are buying 
buying guns. Firearm sales have skyrocketed. To give you an idea, 2000, let's look at a 22-year period, 8.5 million background checks were done in 2000. Last year, almost 39 million background checks. The number of guns is outpacing the population. Women are the fastest segment, a growing segment of firearms buyers. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, I, I have a question, and it's, it's a why question. What's going on? I mean, what, what is going on here? Because on the one hand, we're being told too many guns. We're being told too many guns in the wrong hands. We're being told spiraling crime rates. But at the same time, they... they Gun manufacturers can't make guns fast enough. People want to get guns. Women want to get guns. That's the largest selling segment. Um, traditional minority groups want to get guns. So we're saying on the one hand, guns bad, too many people have guns, need to get guns out of society. But at the same time, you got people buying them in record numbers. Seems like there's a bit of a disconnect. Why are gun sales going through the roof? 855-616-1620. I've got some theories, but I'd like to hear what you think. Stick around. I was just listening to that spot. I, I, in, in all honesty, and I don't have to say this, but this is uh, its a good company to work for. I always, I always tell people when they're bringing prospective hires through the office and they introduce them to me, I always say, well, if, if you're looking for a career in this industry and you get a chance to work for Good Karma Brands, my advice is do it. It really is. It's a, it, it is a, a very, very good company to work for. And even though I've worked for WTMJ now for going on 25 years, it, it's been a lot of different iterations. We've been owned by different companies. And Good Karma Brands is a um, good place to work. And I don't have to say that. That is unsolicited. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't say it. And I just kind of be quiet. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I would also be particularly interested in hearing from females who are our recent gun purchasers, and recent being in the last couple years, because female gun purchases are the f- purchasers are the fastest growing market of of the gun industry, and it's almost it just all this stuff is counterintuitive because on on the one hand we're being told okay too many guns we need these gun restrictions we need to get you know guns out of society but yet at the same time gun sales are absolutely through the roof now some people blame it on on advertising those gun manufacturers i i don't i think that's overly simplistic 8556161620 jeff I think I must have 20 girlfriends who are now gun owners. I've heard many different rationales for this. Some say they bought the guns to protect their home. Some say it's to protect their children. People I would have never thought of have taken the license to carry class. I think it is a huge trend. Let me stop there. Yeah, it, it is. If you look at numbers objectively, then um, the texture continues. It makes me nervous, though, if you're not sure if your son, for example, is suicidal and you have guns in your house. I don't think it's a good idea, but that's just my two cents. Well, that's a factor there. Jeff, I think maybe all the law-abiding citizens want to protect themselves from criminals and are getting tired of the courts letting them free to prey on us. Sooner or later, people are going to take the law into their own hands since no one else will protect them. Jeff, gun sales are going up because people are, quote-unquote, scared. We get keep getting told how mentally ill gang members, felons, ex-boyfriends, and the like are out there with guns, and they could be anywhere. Um, 
we are being told a subliminal message of they've got the guns and it's not safe and the public realizes I'm not protected and so gun sales end up going up. Jeff, the cuts on police and the crime rate, the more people that carry and know how to use firearms safely, the safer the place will be. The criminals only go where firearms aren't. Jeff, I think gun sales are climbing because people are preparing themselves for all-out chaos because people have taken sides. The division in this country is only going to get worse. I think that it is really sale. Uh, sad. Jeff, the more politicians talk about gun confiscation, Dems like uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, the more they are collected like toilet paper during the pandemic. The people who want to control guns are causing the surge in purchasing. You know, th- th- that's kind of an interesting theory. And I think that candidly, there, there's really, I, I think, something to that. First of all, and it, I understand it's counterintuitive, but I think it's the reality. Every time people in Washington or people in individual states talk about more restrictions on guns or or banning certain types of firearms or whatever, um, the, the AR-15, we're, we're going to try to ban those types of firearms. Well, what it does is it fuels sales because there's people who might have been on the fence about buying this particular type of firearm or that particular type of firearm who then say, oh, they're, 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 you know, if I was thinking about getting one, if I don't buy it now, I might not be able to buy it in the future. So they, they rush to, to buy it. Secondly, I think the concern, and again, in some respects, it's counterintuitive because the argument is, well, we need to get guns off the streets. But the more we see the, the, the out-of-control crime rates that are going on, more people have fears for individual safety, and they want to protect themselves against the armed criminals. So, again, it's people who might not have ever considered getting firearms who go out and they buy the guns because they, they want that, that self-defense aspect of it. I think part of it, too... And we're we're sowing we're reaping what we have sowed in the fact that for years and years we we've had some of these soft on crime approaches, and as a result, when you're looking at the levels of violent crime that are out there, there's now this question about you know can the police respond to this? Can they deal with the criminal element? Now that's not true all across the country, but in some of these high crime areas, that's precisely what this is. Um, Jeff, my girlfriend got registered, so um, when the school allows firearms, she'll be the first to say um, yes. Um, you got that. Um, you know, no question about it at all. Um, Jeff, it's because it's not the irresponsible gun owners that are ones you need to worry about. It's all these criminals that obtain guns illegally. Either way, all the good people are trying to arm themselves to protect themselves. So it just goes to prove that the good ones are not the ones you have to worry about. It's the criminals that are going to get the guns no matter what. Um, so gun control for good people is pointless. That's what the text ends up saying. It's, it is interesting to me because Again, there's this, 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 this disconnect that's out there where we say, okay, we want to get guns off the streets, too many guns, et cetera, et cetera. But every time we talk about that, all that happens is gun sales go up. So I guess the bottom line of this is it's not for gun control or against gun control, but it is my firm belief that if we want to crack down on this, if you want to decrease the number of guns that are out there, What you need to do is you need to start with crime control because if people 
aren't afraid that, gee, okay, I'm going to be carjacked. If people aren't afraid that people are going to break into their homes, then they feel that there's less of a need to have firearms to protect themselves. And I don't want to get into the discussion about whether or not, you know, that's a good idea or a bad idea. But if if we all lived in Mayberry, for example, and we don't live in Mayberry, but if we all did, you, you would need to walk around with, with guns. On, on the other hand, when, you know, there's carjackings and there's shootings and all these things, people who are exposed to that on a regular basis feel a need to protect themselves. That means they go out and buy guns. So if you want to reduce guns, my point is reduce crime in the first place, and you've got a good head start. Speaking of violence, uh, just you know, earlier today, the Tony Evers had, had called the legislature into a special session for the purpose of repealing Wisconsin's 18-whatever law that makes abortion a, a crime, at least for the doctors, to, to perform that. Um, this is in anticipation of the, if the Supreme Court were to strike down Roe versus Wade. And what happened is there were a number of protesters in the Capitol, and you can probably hear it, and they were, they were chanting, they were upset. And what happened is the Republicans gaveled in the session and gaveled it out. At some point in time, as I've been arguing, I think we're going to have to have a serious conversation if, in fact, Roe versus Wade is struck down, and who knows what the Supreme Court's going to do. But if it is, in fact, struck down, I think you're going to need a serious conversation that I think there's got to be some law in the state of Wisconsin and that replaces it, and that that is for serious people, and it's not for political stunts, and that's going to be a conversation that you're going to have to have, and I understand it's going to be difficult, because there are some people who think that there should be no restrictions at all on abortion, and there's some people who think there should be no abortion at all, and I, I really believe that the majority of majority of people are, are, are somewhere in between, and you have to find what that somewhere in between is. Having said that, though, um, th- these are uncomfortable times, and I'm not directing my comments at the protesters at the Capitol, but you know, there's this kook group out there called Jane's Revenge, which is firebombing pregnancy centers, and it's, it's over a half dozen pregnancy centers have been firebombed, and they're, they're talking about you know, encouraging violence and things like that. If in the next couple days, and the Supreme Court added two decision days this week, Thursday and Friday, and then next week, uh, Tuesday and Thursday, if the Supreme Court does, in fact, strike down abortion, it's going to be a very volatile decision. And I, I just... I mean, right now they've got fences outside and around the Supreme Court. It just breaks my heart that we're, we're now, that that's the point, that the Supreme Court is essentially becoming kind of an armed camp. But um, this is a very, very emotional issue. And there's there is some fringe groups out there, just like there's fringe groups out on, on the right that, you know, engaged in some violent activities over the course of the last couple of years. It's kind of a message to authorities that you, you better be prepared for some stuff, because like I say, some of these fringe groups, if Roe versus Wade gets struck down, I, I think are prepared to act out. I think some of them have been acting out with firebombings of pregnancy centers over the course of the last you know couple months, and I suspect it's going to get worse before it gets better if Roe versus Wade is struck down. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Hey, two other thoughts from the sort of not the headline-making stuff in the Marquette University Law School poll, uh, just to comment on. First of all, Joe Biden's job performance, uh, bleak. Um, voters in Wisconsin, again, you, you can believe the polls or not, but this is consistent with what we're seeing elsewhere. 
40% approve, 57% disapprove. Um, in April, their last poll, it was 43 and 53. Um, so there, there's now, he's underwater by 17 points. It's the lowest approval level since Biden became president. And I think that's, there is a huge problem here for President Biden that once once you have lost the confidence of a huge chunk of voters, whether they're American voters or um, Wisconsin voters, whether it's a nationwide or whether it's just here, you, you, it's tough to get it back. And so Biden, um, again, the numbers really, really bad. And I think that's probably reflective of of reality. The other interesting number that you never know how to interpret is is this right track wrong track poll for example they they ask hey is wisconsin headed in the right direction is it on the right track or the wrong track well okay here here's the numbers 37% of registered voters say it's headed in wisconsin is headed in the right direction 56% say it's headed on the wrong track all right so you know that that's a significant gap that's out there almost 20 points the problem is trying to interpret exactly what that means historically right track wrong track people would say oh well that's bad news for tony evers because i mean you know he's the governor of the state of wisconsin and 56% of the people say that it's on the wrong track but without asking follow up questions you don't know what that means it, it could be that a, a, of that 56% of the voters who say it's on the wrong track it could be it's because a bunch of people say, ah, oh, you know, the Republicans in the legislature, they they haven't uh, they haven't done anything. So, you know, that's that's why the country that's why the state's on the wrong track without asking follow up questions. You don't exactly know what that means. Why is it that somebody thinks the state's on the wrong track? And and right now, let, let's face it, with everything that's going on with inflation and the like, you know, darn well that um there's a lot of people who are extremely unhappy. Let me see. Stock market. We always talk about stock market. And today, yesterday was an up day in the stock market. Today, um, it started lower. And now stock market's up. Dow up 110. NASDAQ up about 70. So if they can hold on for another hour, that would be a nice, uh, that would be a nice two days that's uh, there. All right. Let us switch gears. There was a, an opinion piece in the Journal Sentinel that, that caught my attention, and I, I thought it was worth discussing. Right now, we are dealing with unprecedented inflation. I'm not telling anybody, you know, anything that you don't know already. You drive past the gas pumps, and I, I understand it was five nineteen, and now I think I filled up today, and it was four dollars and ninety nine cents. I almost want to take a picture of it. Hey, it's I'm paying less than five bucks a gallon, which shows how bad things really are. Because a year ago, it was what two fifty or something like that. So you've got this persistent inflation, and it's not just. It's not just with regard to gas prices. It's with regard to everything. One of the things that is driving inflation, one of the many factors, is is rents are going up. If you are if you are a landlord, what you're finding is that you're you're, you're having to pay more for stuff. Utility costs. Let's say you pay the, for the heat. You know your your utility bills are, are going up. Your property taxes are going up. Um, if you hey, there's a leak in the roof. You know, if you're going to have to fix that, it's costing you more. You know, any homeowner knows that and any landlord knows that. And so one of the things that you're starting to see is that landlords, um, especially after the, the pandemic, because remember, 
there was this long period of time where landlords couldn't collect rent. You know, people were, were allowed to stay for free, and that created a, a hassle a, as well. Well, now that moratorium has expired. Now you've got inflation that's hit. So a number of landlords are, are raising rents, and that, that's going on around here, and it's also going on nationwide. So um, what they estimate is, in, for example, Milwaukee area, in the last year, they've seen an estimate uh, of, on average – They've seen about an 18% increase in Milwaukee area rents, okay? And that's a little bit higher than the nationwide rent increase, which is about 15%. But, but landlords coming out of the pandemic and faced with rising costs and the fact that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of them really got hit when people didn't pay money, they are raising rents. So anyhow, the, the point of this op-ed piece that appears in the local newspaper is the person who writes it is saying, here's what we need in Wisconsin. We need rent controls. We need, and we need the legislature to pass a law which would allow the state to essentially set the amount of rent that landlords could charge. And if the state won't do it, what we need to do is have legislation, because right now it's not legal to do it. We need legislation which would allow local communities to come in and have rent control boards or rent control agencies that would set what the rents could be. So if a landlord, for example, wanted to, instead of just saying, okay, well, I, I've just, I've, somebody's lease is up, or I've got this vacant apartment and I now want to rent it and I used to rent it for a thousand bucks a month and now I want to charge twelve hundred bucks a month or Jeff your lease is up I'm raising your rent from a thousand to twelve hundred bucks sorry but I need to do it if you had either local or state controls that they wouldn't be able to do it to the extent that they could raise the rent it would have to be set by well like in New York City there's a panel that decides you know, how much rent can be raised. And matter of fact, one of those panels, I got a story in the New York Times right now, uh, huge, huge, very contentious because they agreed to raise the rent by three, allow landlords to raise rent by 3.25%, not 5%, not 10%, not 15%. But the argument is, hey, if we want to control inflation, what we need to do is we need to have the government move in to stop landlords from being able to decide what they are going to charge for rent. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, good idea or bad idea? Should we have rent controls? Now, right now, they're illegal in Wisconsin. You can't do it. But should we have rent controls that would essentially say to the landlords, it's not supply and demand anymore, where landlords essentially are allowed to charge what it is that they think the market will bear. But instead, landlord, if you want to raise your rent, here's what's going to happen. You can't raise it more than we, the government, are going to allow you to raise it. 855-616-1620. What do you think about that idea? We discuss in a moment. There's an op-ed piece in the local local newspaper saying, here's what we need. If you want to control inflation, we need rent controls. We need either the state of Wisconsin to do it or to give the power to municipalities say for example the city of milwaukee we need to give them the right to say that landlords you know if you're renting properties in the city of milwaukee you can't raise rent more than 3.25 percent in a, in a given year or whatever all right what do you think about that 855-616-1620 which is the acunate mortgage talk and text line i guess as a starting point unless we are going to have the government tell everybody else 
that they can't increase their prices. I, I, I just don't see how this is workable. I mean, if, if I'm a landlord, in the example I was given earlier, let's say, let's say I've got plumbing problems in, in a couple of units and I, I call the plumbers and the plumbers are going to come out there. Are we going to tell the plumbers that no, you're, you know, you're, you're not allowed to increase your rates or if there's a leaky roof, are we allowed to tell the people who are going to come out and fix the roof? Nope. I'm, I'm sorry. You can't raise your rates more than 3.25% or whatever that number would be. If we're not going to have complete government control of prices, how is it fair to single out landlords and whatever happened to the, to the free market? I mean, look, I, I understand if it's a situation where you know your, your rent has been increased, and let's face it too, landlords have been under the gun for the last couple of years. Remember how long it was that landlords were not allowed to evict people who did not pay their rent? Remember, and this was this kind of idea, people thought that this wasn't going to be a problem. Well, those landlords weren't getting money from this. So is it any surprise maybe that some landlords who now feel there's demand for their property might be trying to make back some of the money that they lost? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jack in Caledonia. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, it's just a crazy idea. The government getting involved in anything is going to cost more money. You'll have to have a board and pay you know, uh, government employees to watch the rent control. And then when somebody complains, they have a board to go to. Uh, they'll have to have the uh, people that are set, are the ones that are, are paid to set what the rent is. And the landlord should be the person in charge of it. It's his property. Now, if you, let's say you uh, built a large complex and you got government grant money, you know, to, to build a, uh, mm-hmm. a, a place that has, you know, uh, units for rent, then, then fine. You know the government can uh, be part of it because they were part of the financing. But as far as the uh, uh, somebody having a house in an upper lower flat or you know a five uh, uh, eight mm-hmm. eight family unit, they should set the price because they they know what the cost is. And if people are charging too much, their places won't get rented. You know, supply and demand, and that's about it. No, I'm with you. you. Know, I mean, the no, I've never gotten into anything that they did but that they did well with. Well, no, it's uh, thanks for. I mean, it, it's the whole thing. I mean, it, it is this concept of of the free market. One of the things, and I know we've talked about various aspects of this over the years, that that people. I understand that people look at landlords as, oh, this is evil, and these landlords are out there and they're trying to rip people off and things like this. And, and what people fail to understand about folks who are in real estate is, it is an investment choice, and by that I mean. All right, you, 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 you. If you have money to invest, you can do all sorts of things with it. You can buy stocks and hope they go up. You can buy cryptocurrency. You can buy gold. You can put your money in the bank and collect, you know, interest. Not much, but interest. You make decisions as to how you want to invest your money. There are some people who decide they want to invest their money in um, real estate. Okay, and that, but that's an investment. They're, they are, they are hoping for a return on their investment. So the idea is to say, okay, instead of putting my money in the stock market or buying some mutual funds where historically there's been a return of 10%, pick a number, whatever that number would be, I think by investing it in housing and taking all these other risks that come with it and having to maintain the properties, but I think I'm going to make, it's going to be a good investment. All right, and but that's a decision that they make. If now all of a sudden you have the government swooping in and saying, "Okay, Mr. Landlord, 
you know, if you invested your money in the stock market and the stocks went up 20% in a good year, that, that's great. You're going to keep that money. But if you've invested your money in real estate, no, we're, we're not going to let you make 5% or 8% or 10%. We're going to tell you you can't raise your rents more than 3%. And by the way, if that means that your costs are going up and now, like I say, your plumber or your roofer or your electrician or all your other expenses that you have with maintaining your properties, if that's more than 3 or 5%, well, okay, and it eats into your profit profit margin or does away with it, well, well, too bad. Sean in Milwaukee. Sean, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, long-time listener. Love your show. Thank you, sir. Um, I, I'm a local landlord. I own properties in Racine and uh, South Milwaukee, Greenfield area. And uh, I just don't think it's a really good idea to cap rents because uh, there's so many costs that go into being a landlord. You know, you have the cost of the repairs and you have your uh, property taxes, homeowners insurance, and it's just... Uh, too unworkable if they would cap it at a lot at a really low rate for you to be able to raise rents you wouldn't be able to keep up with costs which mm-hmm. would then probably cause people to be evicted you know so. how how tough were the last couple of years during the pandemic for for you because I've, I've talked to all sorts of different landlords and for some it was tough for others you know people continued paying but was it was it hard over the last couple of years with like the moratorium and things like that a little. I, I was extremely lucky. Um, I have a mixed portfolio. I have some, you know, that are in better, you know, demographics. And I have some that are in the lower income areas, which would be like Section 8 and rent assistance. Uh, it was hard. Um, the, the, the big uh, challenges I see coming uh, in the future years are just costs. I mean, uh, property taxes are going up astronomically mm-hmm. along with uh, homeowners insurance and uh, just oh, yeah. the cost of doing repairs. So uh, it's, it's going to be a very challenging, uh, oh, you yeah. know, five to 10 years ahead. No, so, no, th- thanks. No, I, I no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, um, I, I, I live in a condo complex and I happen to be on the condo board. We had our annual meeting last night and it was just kind of going through the numbers with people. As you look at, you know, how, how expenses, and you, you mentioned insurance, that, that's a big factor. Insurance is, is going just through the roof, whether you're an individual homeowner or whether you're a, a landlord that owns multifamily buildings or whether you got a condo or whatever and you're contributing to it. It's just costs right now are, are going up and up and up. And I guess if we want to make sure that we have a housing supply, it seems to me that you got to let the free market operate. And if you have landlords that are, I don't know, charging so much money that it's just it's not worth it or not affordable. Well, that's where the market takes over. And that's where, you know, people say, okay, well, I I can't. My landlord just raised the the rent 15 percent. I think that's ridiculous. So I'm going to find another place. And that's what the free market is all about, that if, you know, somebody thinks they can rent that apartment for twelve hundred dollars a month, why shouldn't they be allowed to try to rent that for twelve hundred dollars a month? And if you don't want to pay the twelve hundred bucks, that that's fine. You just you know, you, you go somewhere else and you, you find that place where the landlord wants your money. But to regulate this and the idea of like trying to stop inflation, 
Well, unless you're going to regulate everything, unless we're going to go back to the Richard Nixon wage price controls of the mid-70s that were a disaster, unless we're going to regulate the cost of everything in an effort to try to keep down inflation, which it won't, it wouldn't work, didn't work in the 70s, won't work now, but unless we're going to do that, I don't see how you can single out certain segments of the economy, in this case rental housing, and say to the landlords, nope, we're not going to let you raise the rates. It is my co- most controversial <clears throat> tweet of the day. You can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. You, you might not have known this, but um, headline in one of the local uh, websites is the hop returns to full service because apparently um, not that anybody would have noticed it, but the hop. Well, had not been operating at, at full service. It had not been run at planned for any full calendar month in 2022 for a variety of issues. But now the hop has returned to full service. And my comment was, thank goodness, our local nightmare is over. But but seriously, here's the question. Did anybody really notice that this multi-million dollar money pit wasn't at full service over the last six months? And I posted it there. And I'm, actually, it's been a spirited discussion with some people saying, oh, my gosh, how can you say that? Don't you understand that this is modern transportation and we use the hop to go five or six blocks or, or whatever? The truth is, I mean... You, know, you can walk those five or six blocks a lot faster if you actually sit and watch the hop go back and forth. Now, it might be a little bit different with Summerfest and you know coming up over the course of the next couple of days. But in general, I was telling this story. I have a friend who was having lunch around the public market down there, and they were just they were watching. And of course, there weren't many hop streetcars going by, and the ones they saw were, were really air trolleys. There was just nobody on them. So, uh, the city of Milwaukee, the general revenue is shelling out millions of dollars to support this. There are people that want to take hundreds of millions of dollars more and expand this system, to which I have three words, rubber-tired trolleys. It's been one week since you looked at me, cocked your head to the side and I'm angry, five days since you laughed at me, saying get that ticket. So very glad to have you with us. Hey, I'm jazzed, because tomorrow... Summer, for the first time, really, in its traditional spot for a couple years now, Summerfest is back. Now, WTMJ broadcasts live every day from the, the festival. I'm not there tomorrow, the traditional opening day, because we've got an early Brewers game, but I'll be there Friday and then the following two Thursday and Fridays, and we're going to have a number of interviews. We always manage to corral Don Smiley, and this year I've got a commitment. Bob Babish is going to come on, the retiring entertainment director, and we're going to we're going to try to peel back the curtain and see if we can get him to tell some of the stories about the different bands over the years. But but Summerfest 2022 starts. Now, last year, you had Summerfest 2021. Now, it was supposed to be in June because of the pandemic. It was canceled, the regular things. They had three weekends in September. And I think they get a lot of credit for, for going ahead and doing it. But it wasn't the same. I mean, let's face it, you had... Was, was it still summer? Yeah, technically it was still summer, but you had a lot of kids, college kids that were back in school, teachers who typically like work the summer festivals, you know, they were back in school. It, it just wasn't the same. Now, I applaud them for, for trying because it had been canceled the year beforehand. So we're, we're back. It's not the traditional dates. I mean, Summerfest historically started on a Thursday, ran through the following Sunday this year. They're using the three-day model, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three weeks in a row. And, and Don Smiley has been on this program, and he's explained why, you know, why they do that. I mean, they've done the studies. They find that you know we're 
we here in Milwaukee, it's a weekend town as, as a general rule, and people are much more inclined to go out on Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays than they are on Tuesdays and Sundays and things of the like. And so in an effort to maximize the experience and you know make money and, and also provide the, the quality entertainment that they're trying to, what they do is that they've gone to these these three days. Now, there's still some challenges that are going on. I mean, we still we still have the pandemic, although the requirements that they had last year, for example, where you had to show proof of vaccination, they've been dropped. There's no masking requirements anymore for, you know, children that are out there. Um, there's not the competition that you had, for example, last fall when you had the football season that was starting up and things like that. You've got some world-class acts, but they've already had a couple reversals. Justin Bieber was supposed to play, I think it was Friday night, and you know that's you can argue that that would have been one of the most popular shows at the amphitheater this year. Well, well, Bieber is is um, he, he's sick. He's got a, a variation they call it Ramsey Hunt syndrome, which is uh, it's a problem related to shingles where part of your face is paralyzed, so he can't perform. Um, Ann Wilson of, of Heart. She had to cancel because a lot of her band members have come down with the COVID. So I think they're adding a second night of a Steve Miller show. Um, so that's that's there. And they've had a couple others as well. Um, Willow Smith, um, she's ended up canceling as well. But they're 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 doing the best they can to fill this in. The one thing that's going to hurt them as far as revenue is the fact that because Justin Bieber canceled. At, at such a late date, and, and nobody, by the way, is arguing that it's not a legitimate reason for canceling. The amphitheater is going to be dark on that date, which I and I think it's Friday, and that's that. I don't know that that has ever happened before, but the cancellation was just so late that they weren't in a position to replace it. But nevertheless, there's going to be all sorts of world class entertainment. I mean, up and down the lineup looks absolutely tremendous. I know, um, j- just. For, for us boomers, I know Rod Stewart's going to be there. Matter of fact, I'm going to go to the Rod Stewart show. There's a performer tomorrow night, Jason Isbell, that I very much want to see, but trying to figure out how I can do that. I'm kind of a bachelor for the next couple of days because my wife is with her granddaughter and her daughter. They're going to an orientation for the granddaughter at the uh, University of Minnesota. So I'm trying to manage like dog care and things like that. But I, but the bottom line is that the Summerfest stages are, are packed with activities. Summerfest is poised to be back in a big way. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So how jazzed are you about the return of Summerfest? And this new format, this is the first time we'll have the new format that is three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday over three weekends. It's the first time that we're going to be seeing this in the traditional Summerfest dates. Like I said, I know they did it last year, but it was September, and that that was sort of different. This is Thursday, Friday, Saturday over three weeks. How jazzed are you about Summerfest? And this this three-day, this Thursday, Friday, Saturday options, Does it make you more likely to go, less likely to go? Will it contribute to a successful festival? 855-616-1620. Let's talk Summerfest 2022 on the eve of its opening. That's Rod Stewart. 
think it's July 7th. He's at Summerfest. I'm going. I'm going to the Rod Stewart show for, for sure. And it's, uh, I saw him in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, and he was having some trouble with his voice. Hopefully that will be all worked out. He, a cheap trick is opening up. Looking forward to seeing cheap trick as well. Summerfest starts tomorrow. Our number, 855-616-1620. How jazzed are you? What do you think about the new format? This was will be the first time they roll that out. The three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday over three weekends. It'll be the first time they've rolled it out in the traditional Summerfest dates. They did it last year in September, but I'm not sure that was a fair um, trial. Jim in Bayview. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jim. I'll tell you, I am, I am very jazzed for Summerfest. Yesterday, I called up my friend, and uh, we've been going in on the first day of Summerfest for many, many years. We're going in tomorrow, and I've looked at the Summerfest pamphlet, and I know for sure I'm going in six times out of the nine days. And uh, as far as the new format, hey, uh, three weekends, I think, is better than two. What do you think? I know. Jim, thanks. I I actually... I, I I agree. Now I, I'm a traditionalist, so I, I admit when when they first rolled it out, it was like, oh man, it, it's going to change the experience. But the the truth of the matter is, and and you know, if you talk to Don Smiley, I mean, publicly or privately, I mean, he'll tell you the Sunday and Tuesday. Those days were always a struggle, attendance-wise, for Summerfest. That, that's just the reality. And Wednesday, to a lesser extent, as well. People just, they, they had other stuff to do. And so I think the thinking was, by consolidating it and having a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, which, let's face it, anybody in entertainment, whether you're in the restaurant business around here or the entertainment business around here, movies, whatever, they'll tell you that we're, we're a weekend town. That that's just it. So this is an effort to kind of capitalize on on that. And I will tell you, as somebody who has worked on the Summerfest grounds, I mean, gosh, I've been going down there. I mean, I've been at WTMJ what twenty four years, and we've been down there almost every year. I think that I've been here, and I, I can tell you on the days when the, even back when they used to have the Monday stuff, it I don't want to say ghost town, but it was. You decidedly different. The the attendance on on Mondays and Tuesdays and and Wednesdays were a lot lighter than the weekends. So that so that's just the reality. And so I understand that there's some people who say, well, you know, I like to go down and I like to wander around when there's not as many people there. And to which I say, well, that that that's great. You know, come down in the afternoons and stuff because the, the crowds tend to pick up. But from a business perspective, I, I understand what they're trying to do. Also, from an entertainment perspective, by consolidating the dates to Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, one of the other things they've been able to do is they've been able to, um, I think, up, and I don't mean to diss the bands that played there before, but you're going to see more, nat, what I'm going to call, quote-unquote, national headliners. You're going to see more national headliners playing earlier in the day. That's what they've been able to do by running the festival over nine days as opposed to 11. And for, for people who are traditionalists, look, I, I respect it. I'm old school. I, I get that. But you have to understand the festival business is always, it's very, very challenging. And what people need to 
what people forget is that in the 50-plus years that Summerfest has been around, there have been all sorts of festivals that have come, been really hot, and they've gone. Summerfest is still here, and it's because, I think, in part, people have, the folks at Summerfest have been forward-thinking, and it's like, okay, how can we continue to keep this viable? So I, I admit, extremely jazzed that it's there. Jeff, I met my wife on the first day of Summerfest in 1997, and we would rather see the regular 11-day schedule. But, you know, we're still looking forward to enjoying and seeing a number of bands that we like. Here's uh, one of our listeners, Laura, who lives in Las Vegas. Jeff, my husband and I are coming back for Summerfest during the second weekend. We bought a condo in the Third Ward earlier this year, and we'll be able to walk there all three days. We are incredibly excited. Um, Jeff, separate weekends just seems like different shows, not necessarily Summerfest. I think I'll be skipping it, but I'm old. <laughs> that's, um, you know, that's it. Uh, Jeff, I think they ruined it with the weekend format. No longer special, just something to do on the weekend. Uh, well, um, you know. I guess I don't. I think you got to give them a chance, and I, I think this idea that okay you, they've ruined it. Well, okay if if you really were into going on a Tuesday, well okay you're not going to be able to do that. But again, my advice is come on down or a Thursday and a Friday afternoon um, or a Saturday afternoon, and that's that's will be fine. Jeff, why not open on Sunday? Because uh, again. Uh, Sunday nights, when people have to work on Mondays, Sundays tended to be more dead than Thursdays. And, and they, they've just got the numbers that can prove it. Um, that's Jeff. Jeff, um, I, I'm not a fan of the change. I understand the business part that you're talking about. Seems like they're making it more for out-of-towners than for locals. Hmm. Don't know. I mean, I... I think actually for those of us who are are locals, I mean, Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays with all the different entertainment, plus I think it makes it a little bit easier to plan. And again, there's nothing written written in stone. I will tell you, people that run Summerfest are really, really smart business people. And if they determine this model doesn't work, I mean, then they can always look at going back. But I, I, I think... I think this model is going to make a lot of sense. James on the south side. James, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, I like Summerfest just as much as you do, but uh, this cashless society that everybody's trying to push onto us um, these days, even Summerfest, well, okay, last year, maybe because of the coronavirus and that, but why not bring uh, cash back this year? Cash is king uh, everywhere else. I mean, you can go to church festivals and everything else, and they accept the cash. I mean, Summerfest, well, wants you to get, like, a debit card or something else, puts around and stuff like that. I mean, come on. Uh, we're, 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 we're still, you still want the, you still want the acts, you still want us to pay for everything and all, all this other parking and everything else around Summerfest and that. Why not go back to cash and, uh, well, and, and, uh, dump that? I mean, uh, everybody else is try, trying to do that, force us to be a cashless society. Come well, on. Well, James, you know, I, I guess, I understand what you're saying, and I, I am one of the few, I am one of the few dinosaurs around who, who still carry cash. But I will tell you, even having recognized that, I use it a lot less. For example, I'm going to the baseball game tonight. Uh, with, I, I, they tell me that there is some place in American Family Field where you can buy something with cash. I haven't found that in all the games I've been to. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there might be some place, but that's you know, good luck with that. I mean, most. 
more and more places have, for a variety of reasons, just just gone with the you need the credit card, you need the debit card. That that's just kind of life in modern society. And I I I hear where you're coming from because I I still always at least carry a little bit of cash because I keep thinking, well, I I don't know I don't know why I do it except the fact that I, I do it. But I guess of all the different issues with Summerfest. Um, and going and wandering around. If I've got to use the credit card to pay for the, the beer, I'm, I'm kind of willing to do that. And I, I don't know if Summerfest is completely cashless or not. I'll take your word for it. But bottom line is it, it's rolling around. I, I always look forward to these, these couple weeks because we get a chance to get down there and broadcast from the lakefront, and that's no different. Like I say, my Friday show, which will be a full three-hour show, will originate from Summerfest. If you happen to be down there wandering around, we've got a great review, uh, view of the Summerfest Lagoon. Please come by. I try to come out of the, the vehicle, our mobile broadcast facility during the breaks, and say hi, and we're going to have our street team down there and all sorts of games and stuff that are there. Come on down. Support a great local institution wander around during the day is a chance to see a lot of bands that you i i love to get off the air kind of wander around and just see bands that i i don't know that i haven't heard of and sometimes you find some really good stuff that's out there so summerfest 2022 it kicks off tomorrow enjoy yourself support a great local institution 